Throughout this last couple of weeks, I had been reading a little bit where some science, science smart people, are showing that there is a great benefit to hugs. And I thought, well, that's kind of a lot of hooey. I don't mind a good, firm handshake, but hugging is not my thing. So I started to read this a little further, <clears throat> and there's actually some truth to it. The average hug lasts between two and three seconds. To me, that would be plenty. But if you will give somebody a hug for 20 seconds, there is an exchange of energy that has multiple benefits for both people. Now, I'm not suggesting that you go up and just start hugging people at will, you know, make sure that these people are, are welcome to that. But here's a few, th a few benefits that you get. Your immune system is boosted up by having someone hug you consistently. I would never have thought that. Now, this is according to science and lots of things you can find that I don't know how accurate it is. So take this for whatever you think, whatever you want. It lowers your stress level. That one I get. I can get, gather the idea that having somebody let them know that they care about you can lower your stress level. That one I get. It increases your self-esteem. <clears throat> somebody cares about you. It's worthwhile. Promotes trust. That one I get. Makes sense. Reduces depression. It may. I don't know. Shows appreciation. And it's critical for survival. Now we've all heard the different studies over the years that a baby that is just left on their own, not touched, no human touch, doesn't fare real well. So that's your freebie for the day. I always like to start most lessons that I've ever given with some little tidbit that, because some of you will tune me out partway through the lessons, so at least you'll remember that I mentioned about the hugs. So. The lesson of the day is listen to God. <clears throat> We're going to be talking mostly about Abram, who God changed his name to Abraham, so I'll be switching the names back and forth to here, and his wife was Sarai, God switched the name to Sarah which I'll switch the names back and forth as I go along. So it isn't that I'm misspeaking when I change the names. That's the way it was written. <clears throat> if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 12, I'll be reading the first nine verses right now. <clears throat> Genesis 12, starting at verse 1. <clears throat> The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram left, as the Lord had told him, and Lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, 
his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the, peop and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moriah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to, and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills, of, uh, hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. <clears throat> God comes along and speaks to Abram and says, I want you to just pack up from where you're living and leave. This would be unheard of in this time. Nobody ever left from the land they were born in, basically. You basically grew up there, you stayed there. This was totally a foreign concept to just pack up, take all your stuff, and go to a new land. There were some that had done it over the years, but not to this extent. The Bible says that Abram was 75 years old at the time. Now this is in a time when people were living quite a bit longer. His father was still alive when he left. Abram did not hesitate. He just packed up everything that he had, said to his wife, we're going, I guess, and here, here we go. And he listened to God. God said the land of Canaan will be your basic, basically your milk and honey. That's going to be your promised land. Now, I think we all know the story about when the same family later on leaves Egypt and they go back to Canaan. There's two different, two different exoduses out of Egypt. And this is the start of the first one. Abram and his family get to the land of Canaan. A famine breaks out, and they end up in Egypt. Shortly afterwards, they are leaving Egypt, and we'll, we'll be reading this in just a moment here. They are leaving Egypt with a great amount of wealth. That's the mini exodus, or the first exodus, that is talked about. Now, we're all, we're all real common with the, the exodus when Moses leads the people out of Egypt. We all grasp that one. It's been years since I had read anything about this mini-exodus, as it's talked about. And that's, that's a, a word that the different Bible scholars use. That's, you know, it's, it's, it's just a way to have it distinguished. But Abram does exactly what God says. <clears throat> he left where he grew up and headed off. He did it out of faith. Abram's faith was active, and throughout his whole life, we see where it's growing. Genesis 12, starting at verse 10 now. So if, you're, if you were in the uh, chapter 12 before, we'll just carry on. I'll read down to verse 20. Now there's a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while, because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say this is his wife, 
then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abram well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, and camels. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his, and his household because of Abram's wife Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. <clears throat> Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that, so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram uh, to his men, and they sent him, uh, sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. There are times that we let our logic get in the way of how God has things set up. Did Abram really think that God needed his foolish logic about his wife? Now, it was a half-truth. She was actually a half-sister, but she was his wife. So did, did Abram really lie? He definitely deceived. There's no doubt of it. We as humans get our foolish logic in there when it doesn't need to be. Now, Abram had a great faith. The Bible talks of it many, many times. But yet he got his own foolish logic tied in there at times where it didn't need to be. <clears throat> I don't know if it's a lack of trust in God, but we all do these things. One of the things that we often think of when we talk about Abram or Abraham is that he offered his son Isaac. And then when you, when you ask somebody, what's, what's the story about Abraham? That's almost always the one that people think of, that he offered up his son Isaac. Sometimes you'll think that, well, he lied or he deceived about his wife, but usually it's Isaac. How much faith did it take to actually be willing to go through with this idea of sacrificing your own son. Put yourself on the mountain right now. You've been promised this son, and now you're told to sacrifice him. Are you going to take the knife and put it through your son? That's extremely difficult. I can't imagine putting myself in that situation. Abram was willing to do this. His faith was strong enough that he knew that God could bring him back to life. That takes a lot of faith. <clears throat> Go to Genesis 17, 17. When Abram had been told that, that his wife, Sarah, would be having a child, who laughed? We almost always think that Sarah laughed, right? Okay, let's read Genesis 17, 17. 
Abram fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of, of 90? And Abram said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. I had forgot that Abram had also laughed at these travelers that had said that Abram at 99, you were going to get your wife pregnant. And at 90, basically, she is going to have a child. I can get why he would chuckle. I've watched different seniors age over the years, and I can see where most women are not going to be having children at 90. Like, that's not in the wheelhouse. I can see where Abram or Abraham would be a little skeptical about this. <clears throat> Jump on down to chapter 18, verse 15. Actually, back up to verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why does Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Uh, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But, she, but he said, Yes, you did laugh. Sarah knew there was no way that she's going to be having a baby. Not going to happen. And she also laughed. For some reason, that's always stuck in my head, that Sarah is the one that chuckled about this. And when I was rereading this again, I realized that Abram, or Abraham, also laughed about this, just scoffed. Cannot happen. <clears throat> Abraham had used this trick one time about saying that Sarah was his sister. Later on, there's a king he has to deal with, Abimelech, I believe is his name. And once again, he says, Sarah, just say you are my sister. Everything will go well. Once again, nothing goes well. God prevents this king from sleeping with Sarah. And this king comes back and says to Abraham, what have you done to me? Why have you done this? And that's when he explains, well, she really is also my sister. Again, why does Abraham feel the need to get his own logic messed in there with God's plans? He's human. He does this. Okay, let's get to the New Testament now. Turn to Hebrews, first chapter, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 1 first couple of verses in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways but in these last days he has spoken to us by excuse me he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. In the reading that Larry gave us, it explained 
who Jesus is. It explained what the word is. How did God used to speak to his people? Through the prophets. Various ways, different ways. How does he speak to us now? Through his son, through the word. How well do you know it? How well do you know him? We need to know. God still speaks to us. Are we listening? Now, I I can appreciate that Abraham had uh, somewhat of an advantage in one way. If there was a booming voice that spoke to me out of heaven, I'd be listening. But when it's just written words, sometimes we kind of skim over it. But it's still God speaking to us. Go to James chapter 2, verses 20 through 24. James 2, starting at verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does, and not by faith alone. How would you like to be known as God's friend? Your faith needs to be active. Your faith needs to be growing. There's many things that God tells us that we need to be doing throughout the New Testament. There's there's two I want to to just kind of look at very briefly. So uh, go to 1 Peter uh, 3.15. First Peter three fifteen. <clears throat> but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. That's one thing that God has asked you to be able to do. Are you able to give a reason? For the hope that you have. What's the hope you have? First off, think that one through. What is that hope? Do you just hope the sun will come up the next day? Or is it beyond that? And are you able to give a reason for it? Go to 2 Timothy 2 and 15. <laughs> 2 Timothy 2 15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, 
a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. I challenge you to correctly handle the word of truth. Don't distort it. Don't mix it up, but correctly handle it. Two simple little things that God has asked of us. And there's, 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 there's lots of others. Do you have a hope? And are you able to explain it as to why you have it? Can you handle the scripture accurately, correctly? All of us need to have a faith that is active and growing and trusting. Thank you.